You're listening to a North Valley Church podcast. Thanks so much for joining. For more information and resources, you can visit us online at northvalley.org. Hey, I want to highlight to you that some of the faithfulness of God just through the missions programs and, and some of the camps and scholarships. So uh, today, January 15th, is kind of the end of a little bit of a highlighting season for us with our hope offering. And so uh, the hope offering goes to fund and to fuel our local and global outreach. Probably this week, I'll start receiving meeting with staff uh, and we will start reviewing all of our scholarship funding for Uh, parents uh, that are taking off extended time from work to go serve at camp this summer, kids that are in need, Uh, missionary folks would love to go build a house in Mexico but don't have the funds. So be mindful of that. Again, we're uh, ramping up right now. We're getting really, really close to making our camp commitments, and we want to take as many kids as possible to camps every summer. Amen? So we ought to be the church that no kid left behind kind of thing. Like we don't want to leave kids behind. So uh, we got to give commitments to our camp. Uh, It's in uh, Prescott, uh, UCYC. And so we'll start making those commitments now at some level of, of in faith and then some in historical trends of numbers to try to estimate what we're going to do. But every year we take a number of kids just through scholarships. So we, if you know of kids that ought to go to camp, uh, then send them our way and tell them our church wants to help. Um, if you know of uh, folks that want to go on the mission trip but financially can't afford to it, send them our way. And as you do, make a give a gift. That would really help because uh, th- that's what uh, my wife and I did. So we do above and beyond giving towards this to make sure that we're doing this. And that really does help a lot. So I want to pray for us and uh, just the, the, some of the outreach that we'll be doing in 2023. And then um, uh, ask that God would bless our our work and all the giving that happens in this. So, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the 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 Mexico mission trip, the the uh, upcoming in the uh, future, uh, the Navajo Nation trip, and many other ministries and outreaches that we will be doing in 2023. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, multiply the funds in the giving towards that as it impacts the lives of uh, children, youth, and adults. For your name and your fame, Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Thank you ahead of time, those of you that are already given towards that. Um, And again, one last reminder, if you're brand new, don't feel obligated to give anything at all. Uh, And however, if you've never given before, I want to encourage you to give to the general fund first, and then above and beyond, that's where we do the hope offering. So today what we're doing is we're jumping back into the Gospel of John. How many of you have enjoyed the teaching series in the Gospel of John? Okay, I don't know. Have you really? We'll see. Uh, uh, um, It's been a lot of fun for me as a Bible teacher, preacher. I mean, there's an incredible depth, I think, that you can gain in being in a historical, contextual uh, understanding and rootedness as uh, as a believer who's opening your Bible and sinking down into the Gospel of John. Um, So we're going to be doing that today. The theme of this uh, little mini-series within the Gospel of John is asking the question, who is Jesus? Um, As you might remember, last week I had a pilot friend here in the church. He's been flying around the country doing interviews, talking to people about Jesus, and we got some pretty good responses last week. I mean, some people kind of knew who Jesus was, and again, not everything was perfectly theologically correct, and what we found out, it's harder to find people that want to do the interview when they're unclear about who Jesus is or if they're unbelieving uh, about who Jesus is. So um, this is uh, my friend Stuart Fox. Uh, He did the interviews this week. Stuart, would you stand up? He's a little evangelist in our church. Yeah, really, really cool. And uh, we've got some other guys and gals that love to share their faith. So if you need help sharing your faith, talk to that guy. But check this out, this video asking the question, who is Jesus? What is, what is your understanding of who Jesus is? One question. <laughs> it's just one question. Ask a doozy like that. <laughs> Man, what, what is my understanding of, of Yeah, who, who Jesus is. Who he is as a person or as like a symbol? Either way. <laughs> All right, Moki, let's buckle in. Good food. 
Um, my understanding of who Jesus is. Well, I mean, I think there's the interpretation of him as an actual historical person who was a human, okay. flawed, but, you know, obviously, um, pretty good head on his shoulders. And then there's also the sort of symbolic understanding of him as, I don't know, his sort of A metaphor for, I think, a sort of healthy detachment from things, and a place that you can um, forgive easily and not be concerned about um, you so know, your place in the material world. Somebody to, like, attach to, and is that kind of what you're saying? No, I think that, like, I think, when I think of somebody as being Christ-like, okay. sorry, I have my mouth. No, no, that I understand. I sort of imagine them as being in this place of not not caring about the world, but detachment, where they don't allow themselves to get caught up in the day to day, or okay. you know, to feel angry over petty, minute things. And so I think Christ is sort of a figure that I don't know. To me, he represents, I guess, a state of mind that I think people aspire to, or or maybe they they need that externalized into a person that they can believe in. I don't know if that answers your question very well. well that there you go. Give a big round of applause for Stuart doing that. Uh, so I love, I wish I could do, I wish I had more time. I'd be on the streets asking people about that. But it is such an important question. Who is Jesus? And if you notice in the interview, um, uh, with no disrespect to the individual, because he just simply stated what he understood. Um, but I can recall and relate uh, that interview with a lot of people I talked to early, uh, even in my faith, uh, looking back over 20-something years of, of being a Christian and seeing that uh, people really uh, have a different interpretations of who Jesus is. Oftentimes, it comes down to mythical, fable, or perhaps like a psychological necessity uh, that there is a God. His name is Jesus, but he's really not God, but he's are ascribed to mental uh, metaphor for a God so that mankind can have something to lean on, right? You've probably heard it. Uh, Christianity is a, like a psychological crutch. It just helps you to get by. Um, that is not at all what the New Testament says at all. Um, this is not what, at all what the disciples would end up dying for, for their faith, uh, martyrdom. Um, so Jesus absolutely claims to be God. He is a historical figure. Um, he, uh, the entire timeline of our uh, world is divided by the birth of Jesus Christ. And so um, this morning, what I want to do is take you back into the Gospel of John, answering the question of who Jesus is. And to do so, if you've got a Bible, do open it up. Um, we're in John chapter 10. I want to remind you of the context in which uh, Jesus is going to uh, have another heated discussion with individuals that are very, very much ready to kill him because he's claimed to be God. Um, John chapter 10, I've been in John chapter 10 for weeks now, um, but in essence, last week, if you recall, Jesus explicitly claimed to be God. In John chapter 10, uh, 22, it says that he was at the Feast of Dedication, and that took place in Jerusalem. Um, this Feast of Dedication uh, would have been what you and I know as Hanukkah. It was a, a historical event uh, that had taken place in the time frame between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a period of about 400 years um, that took place there. And this Feast of Dedication was kind of for Jewish believers um, a time to remember how, how th there was a cleansing uh, that needed to take place in the temple. Um, the pagan and heathens had taken over the temple. Uh, they had defiled it. And a gentleman by the name of Judas Maccabeus comes in and cleanses it and restores it. They light candles to commemorate this new dedication of the temple. And then that 
event turns into a historical uh, festival year after year for the Jewish people. And then Jesus shows up into this festival called the Feast of Dedication. And he claims immediately in that time frame that he is, in a sense, he says that he, he and the Father are one. And he claims to be God. And so what would be known as supposed to be this really wonderful religious festival and memory maker, now you've got this guy named Jesus hanging out in this festival, and he becomes the center of attention, and he's claiming to be God, and the Jewish people go nuts over this. Um, some believe in him as the Messiah, and then a lot of other people, they're absolutely ready to kill him, not because of the good works, but because of his not because of his miracles, but because of his message. And he had claimed to be one. And so this takes place in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is having a dialogue on what's been called Solomon's Colonnade. There's a long walkway. It is wintertime. Uh, Jesus is, this will be his last public ministry proclamation, preaching, teaching event. After this, he will hang out with his disciples. This is kind of the last big hoorah. Uh, it's a big gathering. There are lots of people, and crowds begin to encircle Jesus, and they're, very, they're furious at fever pitch. They're ready to kill him. Jesus' face is on uh, Jerusalem's most wanted everywhere. How many of you remember America's most wanted? You remember that? That dates you, that's for sure. Uh, uh, that's okay. Uh, so Jesus is, uh, he's definitely controversial. He's claimed to be God. Let's look at verse 31. It says that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This is the ministry of our Messiah. He's, he's on the run again. Uh, I don't know if somebody's ever thrown a rock and hit you. I remember when I was in elementary school, that did not feel good. And we used to do that to my little brother from time to time. Me and the big brother would say, run. Just run. <laughs> if you don't run, it's gonna, we're going to get you. And so this is a, a situation. This is a reference to John chapter 8, verse 57 and 59, when Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Uh, they were constantly trying to kill Jesus at this point in time, again and again and again, it's starting to happen. If you're a follower of Jesus at this point in time, things start looking a little discouraging. Your big Messiah, your, your king of the Jews, is, he's got a death threat. I don't know if you've ever been around people that are dangerous people that kind of you're worried you're going to get in trouble around them. There's a lot of doubt circulating now about Jesus. And so the Jews, again, they picked up stones to stone at him. Stoning is a slow, agonizing form of capital punishment, very popular in the first century. It's been, it's been happening around the world for a very, very long time. In fact, there's about 12 different countries today that still do pub public stonings. What you, what you do to, to take the victim is you take them and you tie them up and you put them on the ground or you can bury them about halfway up and then a crowd usually encircles and picks up stones and begins to throw stones one by one. Usually the individual would die of brain trauma. In fact, the very first Christian martyr, the guy's name was Stephen in the early church, he was stoned to death. This is the ministry in the context of our Lord. The pressure is enormous. The persecution is, is beginning to take form and to root. The early followers of Jesus are like, is this the vision of, Christian, of being a Christian, of a Christ follower? And it would be. That would be the story of our church. That would be the story of our church history, is this kind of persecution. The good old days of feeding the multitudes is over. Now Jesus is the most wanted man, dead or alive. What's crazy is that Jesus has the guts to stick around and debate his adversaries. Verse 32, it's like Jesus calls a timeout. Watch this. Verse 32, let's see it. It says this. It says, and Jesus answered them, I have shown, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? It's like Jesus calls for a timeout. Before you stone me to death, let me ask you a question. Are you going to kill me? Are you going to try to kill me because I did something good? Which one of the works? 
Jesus had done many good works, and he's getting them to think and to clarify about the real problem. Verse 33, the Jews answered him, it's not good, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Uh, This is very interesting right here to me. The Jews very clearly say that he had made himself out to be God. So people that argue with the Bible and say that Jesus never claims to be God, they're not reading the Bible because clearly he's constantly saying he's God. And even the Jews, his adversaries were saying, he, you're making yourself out to be God. Um, but the, the, the Jewish folks in that crowd are not fully telling the truth here. Because back in John chapter 5, verse 16, it states, this. It says, and I'll just read it. You can look there later or you can look there now. It says, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. So he was doing good works on the Sabbath day and they were furious about him. So they start persecuting him because of the good work. So Jesus asked the question, which work are you going to do? And they're like, oh, it's not for good works. Yeah, 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 you are persecuting me because of good works, Jesus is saying. Uh, And then even further, um, Continuing on in verse 18 of that same chapter, chapter 5, it says this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, not all, but many of the Jewish people around Jesus at that time had had enough. They've labeled him a demon-possessed man, insane Uh, why listen to him? And Jesus is still going to engage. I can imagine the disciples probably pulling and tugging on Jesus like, let's get out of here. You're going to be stoned to death. And Jesus is like, no, I got a few more words to say. I mean, this is the bravery. This is the courage. This is uh, 100% man, 100% God walking into all sorts of enormous levels of conflict, that idea of the Jews, they're encircling him. I don't know if you've ever been beat up by a group of individuals before, but when people encircle you and there's more of them than you, then you're in trouble. Uh, That is where Jesus is at, and Jesus is going to have a debate with them intellectually. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said you were gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Verse 36, do you say of him who the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. Um, That is a lot to think about. And I'm going to break it down for you the best I can. Um, Let's go back to the beginning of the passage in verse 34. It says, is it not written in your law? Um, it's very interesting because what Jesus quotes right here, is it not written in your law? Uh, I said, you are gods. He's actually quoting from Psalms 82. Um, and most of the time when you hear the word law in the Old Testament, it refers to the Pentateuch. Everybody say Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. Um, but here Jesus is referencing the law as part of the Psalms. Uh, and what he's referring to is a section in Scripture He's testing them. The psalm describes God as the true judge and of the men who were appointed judges, gods. In this chapter refers to a godlike role, but never like the men are God in nature at all. And so Jesus is using some kind of uh, what I would call uh, and other uh, historical a- analysts would call is some form of reasoning uh, of how much more argument to his Jewish uh, adversaries. And so what he's doing is, in a sense, the, the argument goes kind of like this. If you, Israel, or you Jewish folks, loosely called other people gods, how do you object to me saying I am God's son without even understanding my point? Jesus is just kind of getting a couple more jabs at them to overwhelm their intellectualism to show that he is uh, justifiably so who he says he is. He's also building a bomb-proof argument towards the idea that the Word of God is inerrant and it shouldn't be broken. So he's quoting Bible to defend his position and pushing them into a corner to acknowledge who he is. 
Verse 37 says this, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. What a key text. Let's look at verse 37. Jesus is, is saying, if, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. How many of you would say that um, in your time in life, uh, you've talked with people and they are almost like a see to believe kind of person. They, they need to see to believe. And I think Jesus is leveling with them and he's saying, you, you, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. What is he doing? He's declaring and demonstrating his divinity in saying that. He's saying that the proof is in the pudding, uh, that you, you can see and experience for yourself. I am who I say I am. That's, that's what Jesus is doing. Uh, he's healed a lame man. He's healed the blind man. He's fed the multitudes all throughout his public earthly ministry. Everybody has seen this. Uh, verse 38 he says, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, this is Jesus claiming deity. He's saying, my works are the witness and uh, that he and the Father are one. He, Jesus has already stated that the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me according to John chapter 10. And according to John 5, these were signs that were given for learning and pondering for their significance. Jesus would perform a miracle and people would start to ask lots of questions. Jesus' works always relate to his witness. Jesus' demonstration of the power of God always connected to the declarations of the power of God. So he would do this. You need bread? I'll make bread. Boom. Does a huge miracle. Then he stands up and says, hey, guess what? I'm the bread of life. Uh, the woman's thirsty. She needs water. Uh, then he would use it as a teaching moment. I'm the true water that you're looking for. Uh, there would be a dark, dark moment in the feast of, uh, of the tabernacles where they would light the, the candelabras in the temple. Uh, Jesus would stand up and then he would say, I'm the light of the world. Uh, constantly. And that would come on the heels of healing a blind man who couldn't see. So Jesus's works always show off his witness. Jesus's uh, demonstration always show his declaration. Jesus's works testify to his witness of who he is. Amen. So um, he says, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And then closing out verse 39, it says, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Again, John writes this. John is uh, the uh, nearest and dearest disciple of Jesus. He's probably standing right there um, John will be the oldest, uh, longest living disciple and will become the, uh, an apostle John um, who will start churches and minister and write letters and uh, build up the Christian faith in so many ways. And he's an eyewitness to all of this. And he's watching this and recording this. And he says, again, they sought to arrest him. How many of you have ever been arrested? I got arrested one time. Now all of you are like, what did you get arrested for? Well, I didn't know Jesus for a very good period of time in my life and got in all sorts of trouble. Um, and it does not look good. When you get arrested, there's a sense of shame and embarrassment that comes upon you and your family. Uh, remember, my dad came and picked me up. This is uh, before Jesus in, in my younger years. And uh, he was heartbroken because he had to come get me. And it brought shame to my family. They said, uh, Ryan, you know, it's just embarrassing that you are living the way you live and you're bringing shame to our family. That's what I heard. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ at this point in time, it's kind of really frustrating that you're the, your leader is constantly in trouble. That, Jesus is going to, basically his disciples, when, when it all really hits the fan, they actually just scatter. They're afraid. They don't want anything to do with them. Um, John the apostle is writing this down uh, 
again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. How did he escape? The Bible doesn't really say, but this is what the Gospel of John says, the writer of uh, this account of Jesus. It says a two different time that his time had not yet come. John chapter 7, verse 30. John chapter 8, verse 20. His time had not yet come. So he keeps slipping out of the crowd, keep avoiding all the, all the uh, arresting and the immense persecution because his time had not yet come. How many of you have ever had a near-death experience before? Raise your hand. Well, you're still alive, so your time has not yet come. Amen? I was in a bad car accident, and I was going 65 miles an hour. Uh, my wife was in the vehicle and another young lady, and we were actually on our way out towards the Lake Pleasant area to, sh to shoot pistols. There you go. And uh, we were going down 65 miles per hour on Carefree Highway, and somebody pulls out and hits us. It throws the Tacoma into a 360 into oncoming traffic. I, I saw a huge Dodge uh, Ram coming at us at probably 60, 70 miles an hour, and I thought, I'm about to lose my wife. I saw, saw that truck coming down right at her. He hits the brake, slides off into the desert. Nobody was killed. I walked away from the experience. I said to my wife and, and to those of you that know me, I said, well, obviously God's not done. He wants to do something more. Uh, Jesus' time has not yet come. And the Apostle John reminds us of the sovereignty of God in that. And then it also says that he escaped from their hands. So we don't know if like Jesus uh, snapped a finger and then he vanished but again and again, Jesus keeps escaping like Houdini out of a crowd, out of nowhere, he's escaping. Uh, maybe he did a somersault and jumped up and did a ninja kick to the throat, you know? I, I doubt it. I don't think he did. But he's definitely getting away, and he's definitely very, very tough. Uh, this last week, my wife, uh, she, we were going through a list for 2023 of how can I serve you? How can we serve each other? And she says, I want you to go to kickboxing with me. And I'm like, oh gosh, okay. That, I mean, I do, that'd be, I guess, so let's, let's do it. <laughs> so, so, so we're on our way to this kickboxing place. And, um, and, and my son has done it, Sam, he's 17. And my daughter, Maya, has done it. And on, before we got in the car, Maya's like, dad, good luck. You're doing burpees, jumping jacks, punching for like an hour, dad. I'm like, did you do it? She's like, yeah, I did it. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I can't come home without doing it. So anyway, I, we're in the car and we're riding over there. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, a young gal in our church calls and says, hey, you know, I'll meet you over there. I'm like, what, what is going on? Who's all at this thing? Come to find out it's several people from our church that are there. So it was embarrassing. I was sweating like a pig through the whole thing, but had a blast doing it. And here's what I learned is you got to be tough, man. When I look at the life of Jesus Christ, I see the toughness of Jesus Christ. I see the power and the strength that our Lord has, that he is going to maneuver. He's going to endure suffering. It is a message to all of us that as a Christian, uh, you won't necessarily escape the challenges in life. But you're going to have to learn through the power of God to endure. Nowhere in the Christian life are you told you're going to escape the challenges of the life, but you will endure. In this setting, Jesus does remove himself, not because he's afraid, but because he uh, is actually saving himself for the divine calling of suffering on the cross at the right time. So the question comes is, you know, how do we apply this to our lives, this message, this encounter with Jesus? Next week, we'll close out John chapter 10. Um, but how could we apply this to our life? I think there's two things I want to um, point out to you that would be very, very helpful. Number one is the good news of Jesus and the good works of Jesus. There's something for us to really consider. So let's look at the good news and the good works of Jesus. Number one, I want to point out to you that some people will absolutely hate to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. Some people are absolutely going to hate it. This is what uh, possessed the individuals to pick up the stones and the crowds 
to encircle Jesus and ready to kill him. There was good news. The Messiah is here. Jesus is claiming to be God. No, no, no. That is not God. Good news will drive some people away. So if you're sharing your faith with other people, realize that some people just literally will hate it. Um, When I think about the segment of our society that hates Christianity the most, I think of atheists. Atheists typically hate Christianity. And I don't understand how they could have such an intellectual uh, monopoly on knowledge to think that they can say there is no God. Um, I think the agnostic, the one who says, I'm not sure if there's not a God, is in a far better, more logical position to be. But generally speaking, like you look through some of the uh, atheists of our time, um, you would see like Richard Dawkins and some of the other folks, there's typically a, a pattern of deep hurt and anger towards Christians. Um, some people hate to hear about Jesus. Uh, he, why? Maybe there is some hurt, but also here's why. Jesus said it in John chapter 3, verse 20. He said, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Are you following me? Sometimes if you're, uh, if you're ever exposed for the errors that you've done, right, it's easy to run and hide. Um, I've, I've likened it to this. So if I'm confronting somebody about errors in their life, it's like, I don't know uh, if you've ever seen this, this gross scene, but if you've ever walked into a really bad uh, uh, house or, or facility and it's dark and it's run down and you flip on the lights and all of a sudden you see little roaches run everywhere. Why is that? They hate the light. Um, a lot of times people just don't like the light. I remember as becoming a new Christian and... Um, and prior to being a Christian, I didn't like being around other Christians because I felt constantly like I'm guilty and I'm messed up. I'm too far gone. I've done too much. How many of you have ever felt like that before you hang around the super Christians and you're like, man, I feel, I feel terrible. <laughs> um, and I say that not in a bad sense. Well, some of that could just be the Holy Spirit giving you guilt to like get right in your life. But Jesus clarifies that for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. So why is the good news so offensive? I'll tell you why. Because if you're telling people about good news, then that implies there is bad news, does it not? So if there's good news, then that means, then what is the bad news? Well, the bad news is, how about this? The Bible tells us that we're born into sin, Psalms 51.5. The Bible tells us that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us further that we are accruing for ourselves the wages of sin, and that is death. The Bible tells us that no matter what you do, uh, you can do all sorts of good works. Good people can go to hell. Good people do go to hell if they do not trust Jesus Christ as Lord for the forgiveness of their sins. That seems so narrow-minded. That seems so challenging. The universalist wants to say all pathways lead to one. That's not at all what Christianity says. Jesus said that. No, no, no. I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. Some people hate good news, um, and that's just the way it is. What is the good news? The good news is that Jesus forgives sins. The good news is that Jesus cancels the debt. The good news is that Jesus credits our account as righteousness and gives us righteousness that's not our own. The good news is that you and I can have eternal life. The good news is that anybody who places their faith in Christ, that all are welcome to come and experience God's mercy and forgiveness, hope and healing. That's good news. But you can't have good news unless you have bad news. Some people are going to hate the good news of Jesus Christ because what it implies. Number two, I would say many people love the good works of Jesus Years ago, when we got started in the church, I I traveled around and and, uh, met with uh, a number of uh, church leaders, uh, community leaders, and 
at the very top, I had the privilege to meet Governor Brewer, and I asked her, what is one of the greatest works that the church could do in the state of Arizona? And she said that fast, she said, ministering to kids in the foster care system. She didn't tell me this, but I've kind of put it together over the years, and you can think whatever you want, but maybe I'm right. I think one of the reasons why Arizona has one of the largest foster care problems, uh, fatherless kids in, our, in the country, is because everybody's from somewhere else, and everybody moved away from something. It's like a do-over state. So you leave your troubles back in California, you leave the Midwest, you get here, you're, you're, you're growing and have opportunities for advancements in your career, but you got no family. And, and those of you that have family, man, that's awesome. That's wonderful. But if you've noticed, right, when you ask people where they're from, they always say somewhere else. That is Phoenix. So you have a city of outsiders, but through the church, you can become an insider. Amen? You can become an insider. This becomes your new family. And so one of the greatest works um, we'll see, I think, is, is serving kids. Uh, many people love the good works. When we do work for Mexico, when we do, uh, we're talking about doing a work down in Mexico right now, kind of like a Mexico Shark Tank thing, where we're awarding and encouraging entrepreneurs. Guess who wants to get involved? Everybody. The Mormons, the Muslims, uh, the Hindus, it doesn't matter. Uh, when you're doing anything for kids or doing good works, it does create some traction. People care about that kind of stuff. Here's what uh, good works just go a long ways. In John 7, 3, the brothers of Jesus said to him this, John 7, 3, his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. Why is that? Because they know people love miracles. They love work, good things. They want to see it, to believe it. Here's my point. Number three is for you and me and for our church is sometimes people need to see more of the good works of Jesus before they hear more of the good news of Jesus. Maybe you have a family member, maybe you have a friend, maybe you have a coworker. You've been telling them a lot about Jesus, but they're, they don't want to hear it. So what do you do? You show them you. You show them your life. You show them the work that Jesus is doing in your life. That that's not near as threatening as telling them, did you know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? You better repent and follow him or you're going to hell. Like that, that right there, does it work? It, it does work. The guy that's on that street corner yelling out, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, repent, turn, or burn, does that work? It, it does work, but, but it's got varied results. Is it true? It is true. But if you look at the, 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 the mission of Jesus, seek and save the lost, you look at the method of Jesus, that's what people forget about. It's actually hanging out with people and building relationships. It's actually around food. It's actually around conversations. Who's he hanging out with? The sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the cheats, the frauds. What's he doing? He's sharing and showing the love of the Lord through his life. Sometimes people need to see more of the good works of Jesus before they hear more of the good news. This is what Matthew 5.16 tells us. Jesus said this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. People need to see good work in your life. What are the good works that you could be doing in your life? It'd look like serving your family, serving your kids, serving in your marriage, Serving at work, let your light shine. The Bible tells us this, Ephesians 2.10. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Bible tells us in Acts 1.8 that we're to be a witness to the world around us. Acts 1.8 tells us that uh, after the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, let's look at this passage. It says that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon the believers, and they will be a witness. A witness is just sharing what you've seen God do in all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You, you can be a witness to the work of God in your life. You, you could stand up and, and share and show the love of God. Um, tomorrow, uh, the country pauses to celebrate Martin Luther King Day. I want to speak to you just for a moment on the, I think, the principles 
that are so important for believers to hold to. Um, and I think there's good work for the Christian to make a difference in our society and in our country. Um, when I think of Martin Luther King Day, I'm reminded of the importance that there should be a good work of freedom for all people, and that as believers, we should be fighting for freedom and for all people, and we should care about life and all of life. Um, for I'm pro-life. Um, I care for the child that's in the womb. I care for the mentally handicapped, the, the ill, the old and the aging. Like the Bible is the foundation of our view of how we should see things. Um, in Genesis, it tells us that man is created in God's image. All are created equal in their value, according to Genesis 126. You look at the life of Jesus and how he treats people and the good work that he does. He engages the Samaritans, the ethnically rejected. He hangs out with the prostitutes. He hangs out with the sinners, the gluttons, the drunkards, all of those folks. And his message is very consistent. All who come to him, he will give rest. He will uh, give life to all those who believe and receive him. The Apostle Paul echoed something like this. He, he said that there's neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, all are one in Christ and all have freedom. Where am I going with this? What, what is my point? My point is that I think that believers have good works to demonstrate in our society today. And when we look at issues like uh, racism or uh, bigotry, you need to think back and give some credit to Christianity and what Jesus has done throughout the beginning and what the Bible has to say. Um, how about this? John Newton, he was an English slave trader who became an Anglican minister. And he's the hymn writer. And he uh, is the noted abolitionist who created that hymn, Amazing what? Grace. You know, when we celebrate MLK Day, like, yes, that's good, but realize behind that is a biblical narrative and truth that's pumping throughout the very beginning that God loves all people and calls everyone to repentance. And that ideas of racism or uh, ethnocentrism, it should be mindful that we should realize that as believers, we should value all people. Uh, William Wilberforce, he was a British politician, a philanthropist, a leader of the movement to abolish the slave trade. He's a believer. Um, Abraham Lincoln, who uh, issued the Emancipation Proclamation and declared that on January 1st, 1863, all enslaved people, the states currently engaged in rebellion against the Union shall be then and thenceforward and forever free. Think of the Constitution of the United States of America. I believe we do live in the best country in the world. You could criticize me all you want, but what makes our country great is the principles of Scripture that guide and direct and hold together the moral fabric. And it's not just great because it's good words. It's great because it's, a lot of it is God's Word. Amen? And if you hold to that, you believe in that, I think we ought to do good work. And good work gives a great witness is what I'm getting at. And so furthermore, uh, the Constitution says all men are created equal. It's part of the, the Declaration of Independence penned by Thomas Jefferson. Whether Jefferson was a Christian or not, he's using Bible words. 1776, uh, during the beginning of the American Revolution, it reads, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they, should, they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are, help me out, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Amen? You look at MLK, Baptist minister. What was the guiding force for him? The truth. My point to you is I think that we live in a generation and an era where you're afraid of politics. You're afraid, you don't like the lawyers. You don't like judges. My encouragement would be to the Christian church in America is go be a lawyer for Jesus. Go be a politician for Jesus. Uh, be a professor because the professors are leaving because they're tired of the persecution. They're tired of the frustration, the Christian professors. Be a public school teacher. Why is that? Because the world needs to see the good works of Jesus. We don't abandon our issues in our culture. We engage in them. How do we do that? We do it with grace and we do it with truth. And 
good works for, I think, for us as a church uh, is looking at the young people. Think about lawyers, judges, politicians. We want to affirm all those that are in those practices. Um, be rooted with truth and grace. Those of you that serve in that capacity, professors, teachers in schools and in the universities, writers, preachers, counselors, military and police. There's an exodus in so many ways. We need good people to be good workers in representing Jesus Christ. But what about specifically for our church? I'll give you three different areas real quick. Good works that I think we can all do together to help win people to Christ. Number one, very practical, but I think you need to be an example to others. The older you get, the more example, exemplary leadership you should display. If you're a grandparent, be an example for what it looks like to be a grandparent. If you're, uh, be an example to your kids, be an example to your grandkids. If you're an older believer, there should be more precedence and priority for you to be an example for the younger believers. That's not Ryan's idea. That's not psychology idea. That's Bible idea. That the older should invest into the younger. Paul says right here, he's specifically talking about the church, talking about believers. He says to his protege, Timothy, he says, I want you to set an example for believers. But if you'd look back in verse 3 or verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, he says, I want you to be an example for outsiders, people outside of the church. So your reputation matters. Be an example as a family, be an example in your home, in your marriage, in your work. Be an example in the church, giving, attending, serving. Be an example. Set the, set the believers an example in speech, what you say. Uh, let no unwholesome words come out of your mouth. Man, I mean, we look back at the last few years in uh, evangelicalism in, in American culture. It's like a lot of things going on with the mouth that I don't think are godly and good. Set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love, in faith, and in purity. Five different areas to think about there. Number two, I would say uh, good works that are needed for our, uh, through our church is, too, is serving kids and youth. Um, I think we're in an Arizona history right now. This large Taiwanese plant, the entire North Valley is going to be built out. Um, God's intention, I do believe, is to save a great multitude of guilty sinners I do believe the parents play the greatest critical role in investing in the lives of the kid. The grandparents second, uh, school teachers, coaches, uh, church workers, probably third. So we need to serve the kids and the youth. Uh, Jesus cared tremendously about the kids and the youth. Some people tried to block him from time. And it says this, uh, Jesus uh, was pretty indignant about it. It says, but when Jesus saw it, they were trying to block him. Uh, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them for such to such belongs the kingdom of God. A couple of things happen in that passage is Jesus commands them. He doesn't uh, question or give an idea. Uh, he commands them, don't hinder them. Don't you dare hinder them. I think uh, for us as a church, one of the greatest things we could do is invest into the serve the kids and the youth. If, I would encourage you to do something with serving with kids and youth. That could be part of a, a ministry. I know we have a number of families here. In fact, if you serve in kids and youth at any level in our church, would you stand up just for a second? And we want to thank you. Stand up, please. There you go. Uh, the church will live and die with a generation unless the kids and the youth are invested into. And we need to do better at that at this church. Um, I want to help in that. And so our elder team's working to see um, how we can bring more uh, manpower and support to our kids and the youth. Uh, so, so important. I just want to highlight just a couple of things that are so important that good works go such a great, create a great witness is some of you can't have kids. Maybe you could foster, maybe you could adopt. Watch what everybody will say about it. They'll say, that's an amazing thing you're doing. I mean, even the celebrities in Hollywood who don't love God at all, they think it's the most wonderful thing in the whole world. You're giving a kid a chance. Fostering and adoption is probably one of the most powerful reflections of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe even as much as marriage, Ephesians chapter 5. Um, fostering and adoption, huge, huge gospel ministry, huge witness on how you do good work. What, what a powerful thing. Anybody who fosters and adopts, Man, that's, that's hard work. I'm with you. I feel it. 
Some of you do uh, fathers in the field. You're loving on the fatherless boy. And if that's you and you serve in any capacity with the fathers in the field program, would you stand up just for a moment? Let's thank them. Good. Um, investing into kids and youth is really important. Really, really important. Let's have a future for the name and fame of Jesus. Um, number three in closing out is this, is give to the poor and needy. Um, Jesus has a uh, conversation with an, an individual who's what I would say very materialistically minded. He misses the point of ministry. It, it, I'll give the context before I show you the passage, but basically what's happened is um, in Luke chapter 12, uh, thousands of people have gathered to Jesus. This is prior to this event, the Feast of Dedication I've just been preaching about. Uh, but thousands of people have encircled Jesus. He's teaching. And then somebody breaks the crowd and grabs Jesus and says to him, hey, listen, um, there's been basically a death in my family and, and there's an inheritance issue in our family. I'm thinking maybe you could help me. Go tell my brother to give me my portion of the inheritance. And Jesus is like, time out. <laughs> Like, I'm not, gonna, I'm not your arbitrator. I'm not your judge in that regard. And then he levels with the guy and he basically points out your issue is materialism when it should have been ministry. And I think for anybody in North America, all of us, we're, we, we, are, we, are com we are completely susceptible to one of our greatest temptations is being materialism. We love our stuff. We have, the, obsess we have a, the obsession of possession. We are obsessed with our things. I'm guilty of this. I like my truck. Don't take my truck. And Jesus, this is what he says to this guy. Does this mean everybody should do that? No, but watch this. Jesus points his finger at this guy. I, I'm going to envision that. The Bible doesn't say that, but here's what he says. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Sell, sell everything you have, go give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. What's he talking about? He's saying that's where eternal treasure is. That's where real reward is, is when you're giving away, it's an, it feels like a, it's very ironic. Uh, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. That's eternal treasure. With a treasure in the heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I pray your heart is in the right place and it shows on how we invest. So let's give to the poor and needy. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the work in this church. I pray that um, where we can show more good works, might we do so and might we do so, oh, so that we can share more good news. We thank you so much for the work you're doing in this church and the work that will be done in this church. And we pray, Father, that you would multiply all of our gifts, our talents, and our service unto you. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen. Hey, I want to remind you, there's four ways you can give at this church. If you'd like to, you can. Um, we have envelopes in the seats in front of you. Um, don't give out of guilt. Don't give out of uh, somehow sense of you're your earning your way to the in crowd. Give because you love to and you want to. Um, and thank you for all of you that do. And so we're going to continue to worship. If you will, you can stand with me and we'll close out our service. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to support North Valley Church by partnering with us through giving, you can do so by visiting us online at northvalley.org. Thanks and have a great day.